Now, gracious Father, we are again uh, glad, delighted that we can come uh, back and assemble with our brothers and sisters that we might, uh, Lord, have your word given to us. It would be effectual. It would continue to sanctify us in our thoughts, in our, uh, Lord, our will would be in submission to you and our practice, Lord, how we live out our faith. This would, uh, Lord, be a demonstration of the testimony of the powerful gospel in our lives. So we pray your blessing upon each and every one that would hear and listen to and benefit, Lord, from this word. We pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Okay. Psalm 3. Um, Psalm 3, I'm going to title this message, A Morning Devotion of Trust in God. A Morning Devotion of Trust in God. And let me read these eight verses. Oh, Lord, how... How my adversaries have increased. Many are rising up against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no deliverance for him in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the one who lifts my head. I was crying to the Lord with my voice and he answered me from his holy mountain. I lay down and slept. I awoke for the Lord sustains me. I will not be afraid of 10,000s of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you have smitten all of my enemies on the cheek. You have shattered the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord, and your blessing be upon your people. And thus ends the reading of God's word. Well, brothers and sisters, as I said, this psalm is a devotion. Your Bibles may even have it titled a prayer, but those are similar. Those are, you would think in a personal devotion, it would include prayer. And it's a psalm that reveals the sad heart of a father. The title of the psalm, which is again inspired, is a psalm of David when, the, when he fled from Absalom, his son. Uh, this psalm as a devotion and affirmation of trust in God, yet nevertheless, the heart of the father that pins this psalm is a broken heart. Now I think it's a broken heart on two fronts, two things. One, the father, who is David, has to grapple with and realize the consequences of his own sin. This psalm is a, the fruit of him writing it, but again, as Absalom is rallying the city against his father in consequence of David's sin. Uh, turn in your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 12. 2 Samuel chapter 12. Now this 
um, is after David's great sin with Bathsheba. It's at the beginning of chapter 12, you can see it's the narrative of Nathan's rebuke of David, right? God's prophet is bringing that, that moral indictment against David. But there is something that is said about David that is connected to Psalm 3. If you look there at verse 11, it says, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you from your own household. I will even take your wives before your eyes and give them to your companion, and he will lie with your wives in broad daylight. Indeed, you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and under the son. And then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has also taken away your sin and you shall not die. Now I won't read any more from that narrative, but going back to Psalm 3, we see that this psalm is addressing this evil arising out of David's household. Now, there is a connection and a correlation we need to make with the sovereignty of God. Something that we certainly touched on this morning, but I want to go back to the chapter on providence and read again that paragraph that we confessed this morning. And I think you might connect the dots, those theological dots. Listen to paragraph five again. The most wise, righteous, and gracious God doth oftentimes leave for a season his own children to manifold temptations and the corruptions of their own hearts to chastise them for their former sins. What is coming upon David is not recent in David's life. It's, it's about something from the past. It's not as if God is twisting the arm of Absalom to rise up against his father. That's not how it works. But when God begins to withdraw that grace that each of us need in order to just do right, love right, accomplish good. We're only left with our own carnality. We're only left with our own nature. We're only left, that is when God begins to, to withdraw those graces, we then become subject to the strength of the flesh because his grace keeps it at bay keeps it manageable, keeps it under control. And brothers and sisters, God allows us not to be overwhelmed by it. And what is happening in this psalm or the narrative and the context that you can read from 2 Samuel 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, the context of this is that 
even Absalom has grown up in David's household to despise his father. And of course, David aided that animosity by what? Playing the hypocrite. Sinning against God, sinning against Bathsheba, killing Uriah, an innocent man. Being guilty of sending an innocent man, not only betraying the fidelity of his marriage, but taking an innocent man and sending him to the front of the battle so that he would die. So David, of course, that was no secret thing. They knew the people talked, the house talked. They knew that Bathsheba was not David's wife. And you can, of course, look at the pregnancy and understand something's not right here. And David earned in one sense, the, the animosity that his son Absalom began to have for him. Now, let me say this about Absalom. Well, you can say, well, Pastor Stanfield, you're being a little harsh on King David. He was the man after God's own heart. Well, sin is sin, beloved. And Sin has great consequences, and David remained in his rebellion and sin for at least, we believe, a year before he even acknowledged having done wrong. After, right, the birth of the child. <clears throat> so, Absalom. Absalom would have been trained in the best, he would have had the best tutors out there. He'd had the best education he could have. And it would not only be an education that was proper for royalty and a royal family, but it would have been a religious education. He would have been well-versed in the scriptures. He would have been well-versed in Proverbs. He would have had a, an excellent handle on the sovereignty of God, the history of God and his people and redemption and those types of things and, 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 and moving the Lord out of, with Moses and deliverance and all of those things. Absalom would have had an excellent religious education. But a religious education is not enough to curtail the anger and the sinfulness of one's heart. It's not. And we see that when Absalom, when he's faced with this, the temptation of, of attacking his father, of, of lowering his father's reputation. Even, even though David had damaged his own reputation, Absalom, in his own wickedness, ponies up to that, to David's fall and aids the, the tearing down of his own father's reputation. He doesn't come to his father's aid to aid him or to help him. No, he takes advantage of that fall. He takes advantage of the people really questioning David's integrity, rightly so. But instead of inserting grace, 
instead of the opportunity to, to forgive and to build his, his, his father up in grace, Absalom seeks to take advantage of his father's sin, his punishment, and then he begins to seek David's throne. And the Bible tells us, and if you read those chapters in Samuel, he talks about that Absalom had gone about conspiring against David the king in the city, meaning he created opportunities for people to have to choose between him and David. He set them up for people to go, whoa, I would rather have you. You're a more righteous man. When all the while, what was God was exposed. Even, listen, God was using a sinful Absalom to judge a wayward a, a, a father who had sinned grievously before his sight. Even though Absalom is perfectly responsible for his own bitterness, for his own anger, for his own greed to seek the throne that was rightly David's by sovereign decree. Remember, how did David get the throne? God chose him. God chose him for that throne. And what Absalom is doing now is usurping Absalom sees that David had sinned, that David had, he had fallen, he had lost footing with the people. He had, had lost, if you would, good rapport with many people. And Absalom, instead of coming to his father's side and aid, and like Galatians 6 talks about, when your brother has sinned, in this case, it had even been a son to a father, come along beside and help them. Now, Absalom doesn't do that. Absalom takes advantage of his father's sin and then begins to create conspiracies in the city where people would choose him over his father. Now, that's the context of the psalm. That's the background of it. And so what we see in this psalm is eight verses and two verses. There are four couplets. That means there's four sections. And so in this devotion or in this morning devotion, in this exercise of trust in the Lord, what can we learn from this? That is, how do we take this? Well, first of all, beloved, we're not above, as David was not beyond the hand of God's providence when God was judging David because of past grievous sins, the same happens to us. Sometimes we sit around us and we wonder, what's going on? What's happened? Why, are, why am I being treated this way? And we don't make the connections that, you know, this may be exactly the fruit of something that I did before. And God is now teaching me the heinousness of sin. He's teaching me to hate sin. He's teaching me not only to hate it, but to constantly be on watch for it and avoid it at all costs. David had an opportunity when he watched, when he saw Bathsheba on the rooftop, he didn't have to stare at her and lust over. He could have easily diverted his eyes and went downstairs and began doing something else. He could have avoided the whole situation. He chose not to. He chose instead to exercise his authority and then indulge in a very sinful thing. It was there, he could take it, and he did, but not without consequence. 
And we see in verses one and two, how David acknowledges the increasing of his adversaries, those who oppose him. You see in verse one and two, he says, oh Lord, how my adversaries have increased and many rise up against me. Now in verse one, what David is acknowledging is what I've already stated in the context. And that is, yes, Absalom had gone around the city creating this conspiracy and, and really, if you would, sort of uh, not uh, tricking the people to follow him, taking advantage of them. He did it mainly through flattery. Absalom would come say to you, Aubrey, he helped you out and, and he, would, he would see that you had a issue and he would say, you know, if I were the king, Aubrey, I could do thus and thus for you. I would take care of you. Where is my father and all this? I don't understand. And then he'd go to the next citizen and he would do the same thing there and he would do something for that citizen. He'd say, where is my father? Has anyone seen my father? And so he created these problems and he was the solution to the problems, thus winning the people to himself and causing the people to rise up against the king. Nothing new. We have to be ever so careful if we fall into those same practices, don't we? So he, he confesses that these, my adversaries are increasing. They're growing in number. Why? Because the conspiracy is growing in the city. It's not static. People are talking. And the more people talk, the more people side with Absalom against David. Verse two is telling because it's interesting how the enemies of God, and that's what Absalom was, he was an enemy of God. And those who sided with Absalom were enemies of God. They were opposing God's king. They were really opposing grace and forgiveness and all those other graces that we ought to be very strong in. They were not. In fact, they would rather taunt and punish and like David having to flee Absalom and run out of the city. Well, Absalom was in chase. Absalom wanted to kill him wanted to punish his own father. He wanted to defeat his father. He wanted everybody to understand he's greater than God's man. He's the new God's man. That's the way he saw himself. That's what he believed, but that wasn't the reality. But the taunt in verse two is what they were saying. The rumors as they began to talk around the city was that God had abandoned David. That God had left David. That God was no longer favoring David. God was not, no longer blessing David. And we see in verse two that many are saying of me, of my soul, there is no deliverance from him when God, meaning God's no longer with him. God's not blessing him. God had protected this, this man for so long, but no longer. God's new man is Absalom. That was the rumor. That was the narrative that was being espoused. 
You can imagine David having to hear this from his you know, spies from the people that had rallied with David that left the city with David. There was a command of people that went out of the city with David. It says in the scriptures that David left the city barefooted with a cloak on his head, walking up Mount Olives to flee the city for his life, weeping the whole time he left the city. Now, of course, you know, some of those tears were the broken heart of a father. What father wants to fight his son in battle? What father wants to deal with the reality that his son wants to harm him, usurp him, and take his throne? But the other part about it is David would have to contend with the fact that the people were saying God's no longer with him because David knew He had been guilty of this great crime. He knew that. That's not something that he could easily just forget. You don't forget sending someone to their death on purpose. You don't forget that. You don't forget the act of adultery and the taking and the stealing of somebody's wife. And I'm sure that in human weakness, as David heard these things, you'd have to fight not to believe them, right? Has God abandoned me? Has God left me? You know, you wrestle with those things, right? And this is why the devotion is so powerful, because look at verse three and four, because he, he's not going to give himself over to that temptation. He's not going to give himself over to that depressive thought and idea. But he notice what he says in verse three. He says, but you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the one who lifts my head. David acknowledges in the midst of all of this chaos, in the midst of this great, great disappointment, and even, even this, this momentary depression, David says, Lord, you're my strength. You're my protector. Even if I'm being judged for my past wrongs and my sins that I've repented of, and God acknowledges repentance, But this is the fruit of my own hypocritical, sinful actions. Lord, you're my my protector. I don't have anything but you. You are a shield about me. My glory, I think that glory there is the idea of strength. He's saying, you're the one that sustains me, my strength. You lift my head. In verse four, we, he even mentions his prayer. He says, I was crying to the Lord with my voice. We believe that to be David crying out in prayer to God. He's, and he says, Lord, you answered me from, and he answered me from his holy mountain. He said, you know, Though I have faced these things, though I'm hearing these things, these are what people, these are what the, the people I care about are saying about me. Lord, you are my protector. Lord, you are my strength. You have answered my prayer. How did, how, how has, 
how was God answering his prayer? Because the psalm was written as he was fleeing Absalom. In the midst of it. Well, he did escape. God did not allow Absalom to capture him. That's a plus. He did not allow the army that Absalom had amassed to capture him. There were thousands of soldiers under Absalom's command, yet no one laid a hand on David. They didn't catch him. God had preserved him. God had allowed him to escape. God had allowed him to flee and, and, and get out of what, if you will, harm's way. And he acknowledges that. You can see the heart of a, of a father that is broken because of what David, how David describes his prayer as crying. And I'm sure part of David's prayer was, Lord, if, it, if, if at all possible, would you spare Absalom? What would a father pray for his son? What would a mother pray for her son? If at all possible, Lord, would you spare him? If possible, would you salvage him? Would you not hold my sins against him? Can you save him? Can you convert him? In verses five and six, he then testifies to his confidence in the Lord. He says, I laid down and slept. I awoke for the Lord sustains me. I mean, this is, this is so important. Verse five is huge because how many of you have ever had restless nights? What David is saying is in this matter, I've been able to sleep soundly and my rest in the Lord has borne out the fruit of sound sleep. Now, I know some of us that are getting older you know, aches and pains and whatnot. But that's not the kind of things that David is talking about and keeping him up. He's saying, you know, my conscience is clear in the matter. I trust in the Lord. I've, I've repented of my sins. They were notoriously evil sins. I've, I've repented of them. And he forgave me. The Lord has forgiven me. Not without consequence. I mean, remember, even the, the baby that Bathsheba gave birth to died shortly thereafter birth. And that's that saying that David says, listen, I, you know, I will one day go to him. Meaning, as good Presbyterians, we believe that covenant children that are elect and regenerated, what? Go to heaven. In death. And David goes, look, I have every reason to believe that God has favored my child, that God has uh, in covenant kept the promises of the covenant to my seed and I will one day be with him in heaven. He can't come down to me. I shall go to him. So verse five is, is a value to us because that we learn that when our conscience are clean and that when we've done business with the Lord and it's in that business of faith and trust is that we can lay down and sleep and the Lord will give us the blessing of sound sleep. 
He says, for the Lord sustains me. I woke up. Now, this is important. Not so much our day and time. We, we sleep behind locked doors. David wasn't sleeping behind a locked door. He was sleeping out in the wilderness. He was sleeping out under the stars with a ragtag bunch of loyal followers running from thousands of soldiers. Where at any evening... Assassins could have snuck in and killed him. But the Lord protected him. And David acknowledges that protection because every morning I wake up, it's the Lord sustaining me. That's how you give glory to the Lord, beloved. I give glory to the Lord every time I have to drive through Atlanta. Because <laughs> you... You know, it's always a pile up. There was a serious pile up on 400 this morning. Four cars piled up. And I'm just thinking, Lord, praise God that you watch over me up and down these roads. And David is doing that. And he's doing it in the very simplest of ways. He goes, I wake up in the morning. I sleep soundly. My conscience is clear in this matter. Yes, my heart is broken. I'm a father to this boy. I hate what he's become. I hate what I have contributed to. I hate it. But I have reconciled with the Lord, and the Lord is the one I have dealt with. But Lord, if there's anything, if there's any way possible, can you save this boy? That's the prayer of a father, or to a son, or to a daughter, or whatever the case may be. I guess let me say this too. I, Sometimes some of the greatest, <laughs> some of the greatest heartache, trying of faith comes from our homes. They come from within our households. The challenges, the tests. Some of the greatest, you know, you know, who knows, you, who knows you the best? People that live with you, right? People that live with you know you the best. And, and it's sad to witness when there is such adversity in the same household, whether it's between a husband and a wife or whether it's between... Uh, a parent and, a, and children are one parent on this side, another parent on this side with children. It's, it's, it's a horrible thing. But even in that situation, the, the remedy is to do what David is doing in this situation, and that is crying out to the Lord, trusting in him, making sure you confess your sins. When, when you make the statement to your family, I've reconciled this, I've dealt with this, it needs to be true. And they would need to see the fruit of it. You know, if, uh, I'm going to give a practical example. Say uh, a father struggles with anger, outbursts, terrible, tar you know, uh, treacherous rants. And at some point it gets brought to this 
a, a moment where there's, you know, a need for great reconciliation and, and the father does this. But then guess what happens in a few weeks or a month or something that goes right back to these same habits. What does the family then think of the repentance? It wasn't real. It wasn't genuine. So the point that we have to, to take to heart is that we need to make sure that we've done business with the Lord in faith and that we are trusting, we're resting in those powerful graces of God to empower us to overcome that sin and to make that profession and of faith and that repentance true and genuine. Be quick in your house to repent be quicker anywhere else in your life. Be, I mean, don't let, as Paul said, the sun go down on your anger in your households. The closer the relationship, the greater the need of repentance, but the greater the, of the quickness of, to take care of this. Don't, don't give Satan an inch. Don't, because he'll take... Satan wants to drive a wedge in your household. He wants to drive a wedge in relationships. And the closer the relationships, the more he loves driving the wedge in it. Now, you may still have a broken heart like David, but make sure it's a clear conscience kind of broken heart. I've done what I can do. And I'll cry to the Lord not only for myself, but for my family, even when they're wrong, I cried to the Lord that he would spare them and save them and bring them out of this sin. So in verse six, we see David's confidence. And I think that's important to our Christian testimony is to have a degree of confidence. That is, we are not praying to nothing. We're not praying to a myth. God is not a myth. He's real. He is in heaven. He doesn't have a body like we do, and he's powerfully orchestrating his will in the earth, and he's powerfully giving the graces that are needed in order for us to live the life. We need. He's real, and therefore, we need to act as if he's standing right here with us. And David says, I will not be afraid of 10,000s of people who have set themselves against me round about. I'm not going to do it. I'm going to demonstrate a degree of confidence that I am right with God. That's a fruit of his prayer life and devotion. It's not, it's not hey, I'm, 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 I'm big and bad, right? I'm, I'm true masculine. I'm a true man. Come on. I'm a, I mean, David was a warrior. David had fought in battles. I mean, he faced Goliath, the giant. He, it wasn't about fear, but that's not, David is saying, my confidence is in the Lord. I'm not going to live in fear, in this matter, my conscience is clear. I'm prayed up. I'm doing all I can to avert this danger by fleeing the city. I'm not even going to fight my son. And even if you go back and you read those accounts, David even told his soldiers not to spare, to spare Absalom's life. And we know that didn't happen. And there was punishment for that. So 
So that's the fruit of that confidence and devotion, brothers and sisters, that we also need to possess. God's grace is real. The change in your life is real. You are not the same person you were when God called you out of darkness. You have, as a child of God, and and as long as you've walked with God, what he's taught you, how he's instructed you, how he has has peeled away certain sins, maybe maybe family sins, maybe 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 you, you grew up in a household where there was great anger and consternation or bitterness or, or lusts. Households just lust, laziness. What a, and God has saved you out of that and God has empowered you to walk away from that and God's empowered you to be diligent, patient, kind, loving, frugal. All of those various things that you may have never experienced or at least experienced in a very sinful way growing up. Family sins. We all have them. We all have them. I think. (laughs) We all have a history where families become very loose and very accommodating to certain family sins. Well, that's just the way we are. That's the way the Stanfields are. You know, like, you know, I'm a redhead, you know, I got a temper. What about God's grace? What about God's grace? Because that's what David is talking about here. The exhibition of God's grace. I am a child of the king. Who should I fear? Who should I fear? Verses 7 and 8. This is sort of the climax of the devotion, and rightly so. I mean, it makes that statement that we can certainly say amen to in verse seven. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. That's the rally cry. Save me, O my God. Why? Because what is he saying there in verse seven? What he is saying is, Lord, arise in this cat, in this case, in this matter, for you are the God of salvation. David, what David is saying is, there is no salvation apart from God. He is salvation. Salvation is of his will, his decree, his sovereignty, his providence. Is David putting his trust in men? Lord, these people, these people that I've surrounded, these were some fierce warriors too. They were, they were, they were, they were experienced in war. They had shed a lot of blood. David's not putting his trust in them. David is saying, the Lord is my salvation. Just like we don't put our trust in any political party. Political parties aren't going to save the day in this, in this culture. I... I, I I know I've already said a lot about politics. I'm just, again, our trust is in the Lord. He's the God that saves individuals. Listen to me. Saves families. He saves cultures. God is the great culture saver. 
He says, for you have smitten my enemies on the cheek. You have shattered the teeth of the wicked. I mean, those verse parallel lines there in verse seven saying the same thing. The submitting on the cheek is the same as shattering the teeth. That's the great you know, punch to the jaw. But what does he say? David says, you, you've taken away the power of my, my adversaries. You've hindered them. And that's exactly what he did with Absalom. Absalom, Absalom's rebellion imploded. It didn't go far. It did not last long. Why? Well, because it wasn't built on truth. It wasn't built on reality. Who was God's king? David. Was Absalom going to change that? No. And God demonstrated that by basically Absalom gave up his life. He was, he was, his life was taken. God put the leader of that rebellion down. And what happens when the, what happens when the leader is struck? People go back to forgetting why they were there. Oh, I don't. I would. Was I, <laughs> did you see me with him? I wasn't with him. No, I was always for you. I was just hanging out, gathering information. And God brought it to an end. David never had to face his son, but he wept over him. He wept over his death because that's what fathers do. Even when they're rebellious sons. That's natural. That's normal. And so David said, Salvation belongs to the Lord. <laughs> David's not about to take credit for this. David had struggled with arrogance, he numbered the people, he numbered the soldiers. You know, by numbering the soldiers, you know what that was a sign of. Look what I've done. Look what I've created. Look at this army I've amassed. David's strength is never in his own strength. David's strength had always been in the Lord, the power of the Lord, the blessing of the Lord, the favor of the Lord. David killed Goliath because of the blessing of the Lord. And in verse 8, there just seems to be this capsulation, this, this culmination of salvation. It's not mine. It's not in this committee around me. It's in the Lord. It's his blessing, your blessing upon your people. Now, brothers and sisters, that's the same thing. That's our rally cry. That's for us today. And that is when, when the Lord finishes chastening us, in this country and around the world because the church has been asleep. We've been asleep while Marxism has been on the rise and we just go, oh, well, no, no, no problem, oh, no problem, no problem. You know, we don't want to get involved in dirty politics. You know, no, that's way beneath us. We're spiritual people. We, we just want to focus on heaven and look what's happened around us. The enemies have been working conspiring and educating our children till we have children growing up despising their own parents because of their Christian values. 
Our trust is in the Lord. Salvation is going to be of the Lord. The Lord is going to be the one that saves the day here. That doesn't mean we can't tell the truth. doesn't mean we shouldn't tell the truth. It doesn't mean we shouldn't preach it. But we will, should not be guilty of putting our trust in people to be the answer for it all. 2024 is not going to clean this up. You think it's going to root out all the Marxism that's in the universities? No. You think it's going to get rid of all the bureaucracies? No. You think it's going to get automatically deal with all of the corrupt judges that are paid off? No, no. That seems to be a longer process, doesn't it? So here's my question. Beloved, as we look at this devotion, we can use Psalm 3 to structure our own devotions. First, we ought to recognize things that we've done in the past that may have marred our testimony or caused others to not like us. Hmm. You know, I should not have treated that person this way or I, I, I picked up a rumor and I began using the rumor that I never conferred. And I, mean, I, 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 never, I just thought I, I didn't like the person. You know, it's not that I didn't like them. They just didn't appeal to me. So I, I wanted the rumor to be true and it wasn't true. And I've done great damage to that person's testimony. I know why they're saying that they're saying about me. Acknowledge it. Realize Let's be careful how we treat one another. Let's acknowledge David had sins had great consequences. Our sins will have great consequences. This is generational stuff. And what do we see going on around us with the with the attack on the family and all? These are generational sins. These are sins that have generational impact. Fathers walking away from their families because they want to start a YouTube channel. They want to take selfies and hike the Sierra mountains and live their best life. Now, mothers walking away from 25 and 30 year marriages and going, you know, I just, I, I just, I just want to be happy. This is happening. States are having to pass laws that say, well, every birth requires a DNA test. Why? Because adultery has become so prevalent. Nobody's word means anything anymore. Our trust is not going to be in those laws. It's in the Lord. And we need to take care of our own hearts first. And when we even have sin rise up in our family, we need to deal with it biblically and godly and lovingly and graciously and all of the, but it needs to be dealt with. And it needs to be dealt with in a way that pleases God and favor from that flows to all the members of the household. So, beloved, that's what I want to leave you with this evening on Psalm 3. It's a morning devotion. It's, a, it's an, an exposition of David's trust in the Lord that we ought to, to 
apply to ourselves, we ought to make it our own. We ought to understand that some of the greatest challenges in our lives may spring up from our own households. So let's make sure we're careful about how we treat one another and how we live in, in righteousness, either righteously or not. People are watching. I, I, parents. Your children are watching. Your grandchildren are watching. You claim the name of the Lord. They're watching. And Satan is waiting to use your hypocrisy and your lack of repentance. Look, you're going to sin. You're going to. I'm going to. How I deal with it, how you deal with it, how we handle it is everything. It's everything. May the Lord give us continued grace. May he continue to draw us near to him and create in us holy affections and desires for him and a hatred, a, a, a solid biblical hatred for sin. And uh, It doesn't matter how good it looks from the world, may we hate it with a holy hatred. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you for Psalm 3, even though the life that David lived that produced it, Lord, is, Lord, it is what it is. And yet the fruit of that and what he is teaching us and showing us is to ever be so careful of our actions and how our actions can cause future problems for others. So Lord, take this psalm, inscribe it upon our hearts. May we not so easily forget it. May it just not pass through our minds, but may it be implanted in our minds and our hearts for a time for us to learn it and to be able to at least dwell on it, meditate on it, and Lord, practice it in some degree or another. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.